Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. The time of the evening uh, where you join us on your favorite segment on Legal Talk, a Legal Talk uh, program uh, tailor-made uh, for you so that uh, you can hear our legal eagles giving you uh, information uh, that will, inshallah, conscientize you and empower you. And uh, this evening is the turn once again of our very popular uh, senior attorney, Ashraf Isop. Ashraf, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. And tell me, how are you doing this fine, beautiful evening? Walaikum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh to you and our dear listeners. Alhamdulillah, all is well, Shafat, as well as can be. We are indeed grateful and thankful that we've seen another Jummah and that our lives have not been disrupted very much in the last week. In fact, there is no disruption. You know, we have so much to be grateful for. There's been a lot of uh, rains, for example. The weather has cooled down here in Johannesburg. It was sweltering the last few days or last few weeks. I don't know what's going on, but funny enough, uh, yesterday and today it was actually cool, if not uh, more towards cold. But we give thanks for everything that we've received. You know, Ashraf, you're making such a valid point, and uh, you know, you tickle my brains uh, once again. There's a uh, Shahid Bolson uh, made the point that uh, you know what is happening in the Middle East and what is happening in Gaza, and uh, perhaps uh, we are not uh, giving credit where credit is due. He said it could have gone much worse. Uh, there was this intention of uh, the Americans and the Israelis to create a war in the region and even eventually go in for Iran and uh, cause mayhem and so forth. But he says uh, the resilience of uh, perhaps uh, some of the thinkers there in the area, he says uh, we are not giving uh, uh, you know, too much of uh, respect and credit to perhaps uh, some of the leadership in the Muslim world. How would you react to that, Ashraf? I have no clue of what he's talking about, uh, I, I I don't know what leadership he's referring to <laughs> and who are, who are these you know, who are they supposed to represent who, you know, uh, and why is it so important for us that um, Iran is brought or not brought into the war? I think what we haven't realized, and maybe we need to just take a step back, while you and I are not facing bombs and guns and tanks daily, <laughs> we unfortunately are the victims of war. And uh, it might be a regional conflict, or as they say, you know, confined to the Middle East or Palestine or whatever. But seriously, I mean, uh, it's it's it might be a little bit more fallacy to believe that we're not being attacked. We're not, um, you know, um, at the at the receiving end of a lot of hatred, a lot of. Uh, anti-Islamic taunts uh, and a lot of challenges. So I don't believe that um, not being subjected to a particular warfare, which is military in its execution, means that we're not in a state of war. I believe that Muslims have been uh, constantly attacked from the very beginning 
And uh, for me, it's uh, the, this military incursion in this part of the world uh, brings to mind that, uh, you know, in, in someone's uh, words, that the crusaders never really stopped. So, oh yeah, I, I can't really comment uh, effectively on what the, the gentleman is saying because I don't see it that way. No, absolutely. And uh, perhaps, uh, you know, he's telling you uh, it could have been a worse uh, situation where the entire Arabian Peninsula, the Emiratis and all this would have been captured by now. I mean, uh, just whilst we, um, you know, we're, ta- we're talking now, but a few days ago, um, Putin was uh, uh, acting like Henry Kissinger. He was actually doing the shuttle. He was in uh, the United Arab Emirates and suddenly he was uh, jumping and uh, meeting MBS with a spring in his step, and then he even went to Iran. So uh, there is uh, something happening, and uh, there is uh, this uh, new world order, uh, or is it another new world disorder, part two coming in, Ashraf? For me, the equation is very simple. Kufr is one system, and Islam is one system. So let's say you replace one system of kufr with another system of kufr. It hardly makes a difference because what is Islam, Shabbat? It is the same deen that has been there since its coming into being. Now, you know, if you read Quran, it also also tells you that before the advent of Islam, 1445 years ago, um, most of the Muslims, or most of the people before, the Quran described as uh, as believers or Muslims. So I think it refers to all of the Ambiya, etc. Now, what basically is the deen, and how can we say uh, today anything is different? We got to we got to go back into what is the deen of Islam from, from its inception? And um, you'll find that it's it's quite different from how we understand things today. So for me, um, really, whether it's Putin uh, doing shuttle diplomacy today or some other person, Xi Jinping, or even the Pope or whatever they, they call the Dalai Lama, whatever, it, it means very because look, we're not getting out of what is the control mechanisms against not just the Muslims, but all of humankind. I mean, let's say things normalize tomorrow, for example, and life returns to, as it was last week, quietness. What did that really change on the ground for anyone, Shafa? Mm. Nothing. Say if it's a permanent ceasefire, well, what does it really mean? It means that there'll be buildings that will be reconstructed um, and that comes at the cost. For example, now they're talking about um, the reconstruction cost of Ukraine. Um, Blackwater is talking about it going into trillions of dollars. So you're using the same system to break down human and then rebuild their buildings. For me, that is not um, restoring justice 
of any kind in the world that we face. There is justice lacking in economics. There is justice lacking in how the ecology is being preserved. There is justice lacking in how food is distributed. I mean, there's enough food for everyone, yet we have starvation. There is uh, now this terrible thing of, um, you know, rape being justified as part of warfare. I mean, there's no justice for the women. You know, it reminds me that when the Russians invaded Germany, it was always, uh, it was almost a mass scale rape of the German women. And uh, can you imagine that? How humiliating it would have been for them. And um, I've seen some clips where obviously Hamas was uh, accused of that, but there was no evidence. But um, there is appears to be a certain elements in the IDF that seem to justify that kind of thing. Quite frightening, Shafat. When you look at how the world is skewed, now, you, you're looking at one capitalist model, one side of it, and on the flip side, there's capitalism on the other side. It's just spoken in a different language and a different uh, denomination. It's quite funny for me, you see, about when this week, in our own parliament or last week, uh, 30 pieces of silver were tossed over to the people that had opposed the resolutions on Palestine, you know, it was, uh, you know, it was quite dramatic uh, that Judas Iscariot sold out Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Unfortunately, we've sold out the dean for pieces of paper. So it's, for me, that's the central issue here. So I can't see any brokering by anyone making a difference. It hasn't brought down the so-called UAE, United Arab Emirates. It hasn't made them the United Muslim Ummah in any way. So what are we talking? We're still talking about nationalism uh, and borders drawn by the British after the First World War and the destruction of the Khalifat. And even between them, you know, the British and the French, they, they were also double-crossing each other in Syria and Lebanon and so we now find ourselves inheriting all of these things and then acting in it as if, as if it's perfectly normal to have all of these 58 Arab states uh, with, with, no, with no indication of where Islam is practiced in its totality. Let's not be mistaken. Cutting of hands and whooping of people and beheadings in Saudi Arabia is not Islam. So... What are we looking at? You know, who's going to make what peace and for how long? Because tomorrow, look, the, the, the slaughter has continued unabated for 75 years. Nothing has changed. And um, if it does, what will be the nature of that change? Of course, now we've moved from uh, paper money to digital money and uh, cryptocurrencies. Nobody knows who controls it and how these things work. But we all participate daily in it, you see. Tisha, that for me is the biggest problem. How, we, how do we overcome 
these issues because these are the only issues that will ultimately determine the way forward. And, you know, some people are saying, well, you need this uh, before the uh, uh, arrival of the Dajjal and uh, this and that. Again, I can't see it, Shafat. I can't, I can't see how we're predicting the coming of all of these uh, yeah, uh, you know, powers that we've been told about. I mean, Dajjal is an evil power, and we're told that the Mahdi will come, and then we are told that Sayyidina Isa will return. I have a simple question. If all that were to happen tomorrow, what is the currency that they're going to be using? Going to be using the, the banks. Um, is the Mahdi going to buy uh, weapons in, in the currency of uh, that is an evil in itself? How, how? So these are the questions that I myself struggle with, and I can't find agreement with some of these statements out there that says this or that organization, including the United Nations, will be our liberators. It doesn't. It hasn't worked. It will not work. It does not work. We have to go back to the only way that has been revealed to be perfect, which is the Deen al-Islam. Deen al-Islam has a system of governance, of authority, and we don't have that. We haven't established it. We don't even afford ourselves uh, the liberty of even thinking about what is correct because we're constantly told that this and that is correct. And uh, again, I might be harping on this. I mean, how easily we, we change like chameleons, you know? The um, banking example is, is, is paramount. All these silly notions of Islamic banking and Islamic insurance and you're still dealing in the currency that in itself is a fiction, itself is the basis of riba. And and then, uh, you know, we, we take half measures and we feel quite nice about it, you know. And we find that this uh, supposed mufti of this part of the world, he's supposed to be the authority, yet he sits on five banks earning $100,000 per per bank, per annum. <laughs> He's not about to give up his little $600,000 per annum. Comfortable to sell it to us that, uh, okay, this is Islamic and this is allowed and absolute, absolute for me, horror that, that we haven't realized that Islam is one system. Kufr is one system. That is a challenge that I find uh, and, and questions that I need, uh, basically, to uh, to grapple with. But that's what I'm saying, Shabbat. I don't believe that anyone can be the spokesperson for anyone else in the Ummah. I mean, if we speak of the EU, we know who we're speaking to. If we speak to the General Secretary of the UN, we know who we're speaking to. If you speak to the uh, Vatican, it has a spokesperson. The Dalai Lama has a spokesperson. 
how come we don't have? We have all of these little fellows in the Middle East, and then you know we say, oh, this guy gave a wonderful speech, and the, that guy said walked out of this meeting. I just absolutely for me, it doesn't make sense that we don't have the ability to put an authority together. Of course, we know that authority was removed. That's that's our starting point. But it appears that we don't even have the idea that it can be reinstated or that we should even think about what exactly is going on. How are we to govern ourselves? What is our system? What? How did it work? Why, why have we abandoned it uh, with such zeal? And this doesn't mean by any means or form that we mustn't use the technology. So I'm not saying you know, abandon the car and walk in the desert and all that. No, no. Technology is there. What I'm saying is the means of exchange is the root cause of the power being wielded in the manner that it is. And, uh, and unless and until we are able to revert to buy metal currency um, and a fair exchange system where capital is not rewarded, I'm afraid we're going to find ourselves repeatedly in the same kind of slaughter, Shabbat. You know, Ashraf, you make a lot of sense. And, uh, you know, talking about the status quo, nothing will change. As long as you have these nation states, you have these bankers, you have the same currency. And, you know, we'll, uh, I mean, maybe we'll have uh, different uh, actors. But the same script will be played over and over and over again. By the way, Ashraf, if Isa salam comes back, he will take on the bankers. He'll take on the riba system and he'll turn it upside down, Ashraf. <laughs> Have you thought about that? Well, that's where he left off, isn't it? That, that's why they went for him. Mm. Because he was no threat by walking around and curing the the sick and giving life to the dead. And it's only when he when he walked in the inner temple and he saw these money lenders and then he said, no man, I'm not going to be talking here, turn the other cheek and father forgive them. He whooped them. This is a physical response to an evil that he saw. And he threw over their temples, uh, their, their tables, and he forbid them from uh, uh, the money exchange in the inner temple. And now, I'm certain when he comes back, He's going to go for the same thing. He's going to say, right now, okay, we have to now try the money lenders, turn them out, throw over their system, and you'll continue whooping them. Yeah. So uh, I think that's uh, yeah. probably what will happen. Bring out the Shambak. Give it to them. Because they're causing a lot of misery. Well, Ashraf, talking about our topic uh, this evening, uh, where we uh, talk about the Concord uh, makes a significant ruling over visas for foreign national parents with South African-born born children. And I can tell you there's lots and lots of South African-born children who have uh, fathers from other lands, but the children produced in RSA. Ashraf, your thoughts on the topic? But this is a very, very significant judgment, uh, Shafat. Let's understand what happened in the past. 
So in the past, a foreign spouse had two regimes to join the local spouse. Now, for the purpose of our discussion, let's ignore the difference between what they call life partnership and marriages. If you are joined to a South African spouse via one of these regimes, the two kinds of permits that were available to you was a Section 18, otherwise known as a relative's permit. Part B of the relative's permit forbade the foreign spouse from conducting work, which left you with the only other option in terms of Section 11.6. In terms of Section 11.6, you actually had a dual system of permits. The first one says uh, to accompany life partner or spouse and they'll give the ID number. I'm just pause to mention that it's not just limited to citizens, it's generous enough to extend to people with permanent residence permits in, in the Republic. And then part B says you can conduct any other activity. Now, in the event that that primary visa would be cancelled for any reason, such as that the marital relationship or the good faith spousal relationship no longer existed between the parties, that meant that that foreign spouse, parent, didn't have a primary visa to remain in the country. And as a result, they had the difficulty of having to stay um, illegally in the country, alternatively having to leave alone or with their children to some other place and then applying for another kind of visa. Now, the other kind of visa could only be one of the other immigration visas, such as a study visa, a own business visa, a critical skills visa, an intra-company transfer, or a general work visa. Now, each of these visas has got quite a number of very, very strenuous hurdles to overcome. And so I'm just clarifying that there wasn't a visa that said, accompany your child. Now the court said, look, it can't be that this um, situation it can go unaddressed because the rights of the children to dignity and their own rights were in danger of being ignored, which is obviously against the Constitution. And so the judge, uh, 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 Chief Justice Zondo, it was a unanimous decision, passed 
a judgment on the 4th of December, which is a couple of days ago, invalidating sections of the Immigration Act and regulations because they were inconsistent with the Constitution. So I think the first takeaway, Shafat, is everything is tested against the Constitution. And where there's constitutional invalidity, then the Constitutional Court will declare such to be invalid and they will give Parliament an opportunity to amend the legislation to bring it in line with the Constitution. So this was a very important judgment because it also declared the invalidity uh, to be, you know, it had to be corrected by uh, Parliament. But he declared during the period of suspensions uh, very dramatically saying that in terms of Section 11.6, the visa that the person had is deemed valid pending the outcome of an application by the foreigner for a new visa, which they said they must do within the end of the three months, within three months of the end of the good faith spousal relationship. And if it's that the application is made after the end of the good faith spousal relationship, they have to show good cause why they couldn't do it. Uh, And then they read into uh, the Immigration Act that uh, the holder of a relative's visa may conduct work if they are the spouse or parent of a citizen or permanent residence. And if they are fulfilling certain needs, for, for example, responsibilities and childcare, and, or even, they said, which is, which is quite dramatic, even if they evidenced an intention to fulfill his or her responsibilities. So, so, you know, even if you were not employed, but you said, look, I want to stay because I want to be employed, then the Immigration Act had to be changed to accommodate that new system. You can see this is very, very far reaching in respect of the applicants in that case. Uh, It's popularly known as Raymond versus the minister, but each of the people in the in that applic in that case, uh, Teresa Raymond, Thierry Gondran, Richard Anderson, and Joshua Ogada were the applicants, and the court said, "Look, we'll deal with all the applicants together." Now, I want to pause to just reflect on another part of the judgment. Then there was a Mr. T. Tembo. Mr. Tembo's application was refused with costs. And he, Mr. Tembo, had to pay the cost in his personal capacity. Now you must be wondering, now what happened here? Mr. Tembo was the father of a, of a citizen. His good faith spousal relationship had ended and Mr. Tembo was refused. 
Now, here's what the court had to say regarding Mr. Tembo, because I think it's important. They found that, look, Mr. Tipiwa Tembo is acting on behalf of his son, and he joined these applicants, and he said, look, I'm similarly affected, and I want relief. That part of the case dealt separately with Mr. Tembo. Here's what happened with Mr. Tembo. They found that Mr. Tembo had entered the Republic illegally. So that was the first thing. He was from Zimbabwe, and then Mr. Tembo came and went on different occasions illegally. She was actually in breach of the immigration laws of the Republic repeatedly. They also found that Mr. Tembo did not participate in the ZDP. Why didn't he, you know, take up what was afforded to Zimbabweans by way of the ZDP? And they said, no, this Mr. Tembo, we can't support his application. And they mulched him with wasted costs, as I've just mentioned. The interesting thing about Mr. Tembo is that he was declared undesirable. Now, you've got to understand what is being declared undesirable. That means when you leave the country and you have overstayed your visa, yes, and they felt that Mr. Tembo didn't deal with his desirable status. Oh. The second problem they had with Mr. Tembo, he instituted applications in the high court without exhausting internal remedies, which means like going through the Section 8.4 and 8.6 reviews as provided for in the Immigration Act. And they said, no, look, Mr. Tembo, you can't just come and say now, you know, your child's rights are paramount, which is true. Section 28 of the Constitution says the child's best interests are of paramount importance in every matter concerning the child. We also know that a child, upper guardian, is the high court. So sometimes even where the um, parties don't agree, the court will step in and say, I'm here to protect the child. But in this case, they said, no, look here. You've come to the court with dirty hands. The Director General of Home Affairs was at pains to emphasize that Mr. Tembo had entered and left South Afri Africa illegally on many occasions. He wasn't being clear. He wasn't telling the court the whole thing. He didn't say why he failed to regularize he stay. And they said, look, even if you didn't do all of that, you could have applied to the minister in terms of Section 31 to waive your undesirability, which is something that you can do when you're declared undesirable. You have an opportunity to appeal against that. But he didn't even take any of those steps. And the director general said, look, Mr. Tembo, has basically, you know, he's, he's the master of his own misery because 
he failed to to take advantage of what the law provided. And it's important that Chief Justice Zondro said that he upheld the, the view of the High Court to dismiss Mr. Tembo's application. Again, they said dirty hands. So you can see how important it is to not to contravene the Immigration Act willingly and not to give any explanation as to why you're in the country illegally, whereas you could have done, you could have entered legally. So, you know, you could have gone back to Zimbabwe and entered as an ordinary visitor, for example. And he stayed for many years in this situation illegally, and now he approaches the court for relief. And they said, listen, not all is lost. You, you, you can now start again, but you've got to give a proper explanation for having engaged in so many contraventions of the Immigration Act. And importantly, I think the judge said, no self-respecting country, right, can allow somebody who's conducted himself in such a manner can at the same time seek benefits under the act when it suits him. And so you can see the courts will not acquiesce um, when you when you basically behave in an illegal manner. So you can't expect the court to uphold your illegality where you fail to give a proper explanation. Now, his application was dismissed, as we've said. And now the question is, what must, what must Mr. Tembo do? Can, can he not still continue? Of course he can. Uh, they didn't say, look, you are illegal and now you must return to your country of origin. Because there are overriding judgments in this regard. The first is the Dow decision of 2000. And there, the court had to test the right to dignity. Now, let us understand that the right to dignity is contained in the Bill of Rights. And the Bill of Rights is said to be the cornerstone of democracy in the country. So all the rights in the Bill of Rights are paramount and they apply equally to everyone, except where it says a citizen. So when the, when the, when the Constitution uses the word everyone, it means everyone. Legal and illegal, it, it means everybody within the uh, borders of the republic when it when it says a citizen is entitled to a passport then obviously that right is only limited to citizens now mr temple <laughs> also made the judges very cross mm. because i just said look you know what you you added work here for us unnecessarily you know why did you just join this why didn't you exhaust your internal remedies? Why didn't you come? You just saw an opportunity and you claimed in here saying, hey, I'm also a father. Here's my child. Um, I shouldn't be allowed to, I shouldn't be sent out, which is against the Daud and Nandatu decisions. So Daud and Nandatu basically said that the right to dignity is paramount and an aspect to dignity is the right to marriage. And the right not to have the marriage unlawfully, you know, it, it didn't allow for unlawful separation of spouses. 
which basically would lead to a strain on the marriage and ultimately the marriage could fail. Alternatively, in the case of Daud, at that time, uh, spouses had to leave the country to go and change their conditions. And Nandatu has addressed that as well. And he said, no, no, that is too onerous. We can't allow that because of the threat to the family and especially the children. The, The children should not be affected by their parents' lack of status and them having to go and come back at great expense. So as we know, you know, a lot of these instances where you go out and you're not allowed back because homophobia just takes so long. As we know, there's a huge backlog of applications in the region, about 70,000. It hasn't abated. Half of that is spousal applications, which is includes the right to, to, to work. And 9,000 of the 35,000 is what we call relatives visas, where the spouse basically has to sit at home. Now, given this dysfunctional nature of the department, how is it that you're going to be sent out? How long will your appeals take? You know, what's going to happen to you there? Most importantly, what's going to happen to the children here? How can they be left without a breadwinner? How can they be supporting themselves? So there the court said, no, I understand Mr. Tembo's best interest. Uh, Mr. Tembo's child, KM, has to be considered. And in this case, look, we just, we can't allow Mr. Tembo to abuse our system. Now, normally, you know, in the, when you're pursuing a constitutional remedy, right, um, court does not use, um, they do not order costs against you. Um, because it's just not, it's not correct. If you, if you have a constitutional issue, it's called a biowatch principle. Anyway, they don't order costs against you. But here the courts were very, very cross with Mr. Tembo. And uh, they said to him, no, you should be you should be mulched with costs. I mean, there were four councils here. Uh, and, uh, you know, there were two senior councils on each side. And so they had to, he had to pay, obviously he had to pay his own legal team. I don't know what the arrangement was there. Um, but obviously this, the, the costs of the state and the state attorney and the council's costs had to be paid by uh, Mr. Tembo. So you can see a, quite a, I, w- I would say quite a whack I mean, this was not something that you could take easily, you know, when you when you litigate, especially in the high court and constitutional courts. There's a baseline uh, limit that you start from, which is, you know, statutorily declared what you can charge per hour. Um, and you can't charge below that because it amounts to touting. The only other way that you can engage with your attorney or your counsel is, is if you in, enter into a contingency fee arrangement. So we don't know what the arrangement was here with Mr. Tembo's own legal team. But as regards the legal team of the state, uh, I mean, even if you take the base limit of uh, cost allowances in the high court, 
which I think nowadays is in the region of about 1,750 per hour. It's quite expensive, Shafat. Mm. Sorry, I took too long to explain no. this, but I, I think... Yeah, it's important. You know, yeah. Yeah, you, uh, you make a lot of sense. And uh, perhaps uh, people ask uh, many questions, uh, Ashraf, and I, when uh, we had uh, put up your composite, I received uh, quite a few cus uh, questions. And uh, this one uh, said, uh, it's from Babu. He says, uh, please, uh, Bruce Chef, when uh, senior attorney Ashraf Isub comes on, please ask him what happens to spouse or the spouse visa after a divorce in South Africa because uh, lots of divorces have taken place. But the guys are still running around town. Uh, he's talking about the foreigners. Uh, talk about that, uh, Ashraf. So basically, um, this judgment addresses that position. Yes. So let's your marriage ends. Your marriage can end, only end by one of two ways, death or divorce, right? Now, here's a divorce, but you have parental obligations towards minor children. Now you are covered by this, which says that that permit continues for its life, but you have a period of three months from the end of that permit, which is divorce, to apply for a regular permit. Now remember, we spoke of what is a regular permit, which will be a work visa, uh, own business visa, critical skills, but I think people have missed very important part of Section 11. This is, there's a part of Section 11 which says that you may apply for any other visa, for any other reason. And I remember doing an application in Belgium for a mother who had two children studying in the Republic. She had no other permit. She, they, they didn't even have a South African spouse or a, a father, and we applied successfully under that category for any other purpose, and we, we justified it by saying the children here needed support. The mother had her own funds. She could support them, but she needed physical proximity to the children as it was in their best interest to have a normal functioning household, and she needed to be here, and indeed, a visa was extended to her. I don't know what has happened to her since, but there's certainly some hope there. The other very important route to take is if you don't fall into one of the other categories and you fall under a general work visa, the requirement, very onerous again, is for you to obtain a certificate from the Department of Labor that certifies that they support your application. Let's say you're a shopkeeper or a shop assistant. They support your application over and above the requirement that a South African citizen or permanent resident permit holder may be employed in that position. Now, that is easier said than done. It's very, very difficult to get the department. Mm. But you have the Immigration Act very important provision that you can apply to the Minister of Home Affairs to waive any regulation. Not not a part of the Act. Understand this. Shavad, you can't, the Minister cannot waive 
what is passed by parliament, what is in the act, mm. he can only waive a regulation. And that's very important because the regulations state that you must get a, a certificate from the Department of Labor. Hence, I'm saying you apply to the minister and say, look, I intend to stay here. These are my children. I want to work as a top assistant. And can you please waive this? These are the requirements. The employer also has to assist him and say, look, um, you know, I've looked around. I can't find anyone. I like Mr. X. Mr. X can do A, B, and C to improve the business. Very importantly, he's here to take care of his children. This judgment now makes that possible for you to argue that a waiver should be granted. Let's see how it turns out uh, by the minister. Yes, uh, Sharaf, as you go on and, uh, you know, you talk about uh, the waiver and uh, many important uh, issues. And as you, you know, in this country, uh, you're talking about uh, visas and all that is uh, quite an important topic because also the Minister of Home Affairs is always in the headlines. Uh, it was a question from Asad Ali Sarwan who said, uh, how long does it take for a spousal visa to, uh, to be approved in South Africa? I believe you said there's a waiting list of over... 70, 80, 100,000, Ashraf? Yeah, in the past, um, the department gave an undertaking uh, of between 8 and 12 weeks. They haven't kept to that. There have been numerous challenges, court cases, that said to the, uh, to the department, finalize these applications. So lots and lots of people have turned to the courts for relief. Now, in law, a reasonable period is reckoned to be 90 days. Now, how do we come to that? Because the Immigration Act itself and the regulations do not give a specific time period. These time periods were gleaned from websites such as VFS that said uh, TRVs or temporary residence visas took between 8 and 12 months to finalize, uh, sorry, weeks, and uh, permanent residence permits took a period of between 8 and 12 months to finalize. But obviously, the department was not keeping to those timelines, which we can argue is guidelines. So where the legislation itself doesn't make any provision for the time limit, a reasonable time is reckoned to be 90 days. Now, it's important to understand this 90-day rule, Shafat, because in the event that the department has delayed uh, giving you an outcome in 90 days, you only have a period of 180 days to review that delay because the law says you must have known after the 90-day period, look, a reasonable period has now elapsed. You didn't bring a review application to the High Court because the, the in terms of Administrative Justice Act, you only have a period of 180 days if your uh, rights are affected. And if you don't do so, then you are in breach of the 180-day rule and you'll have to apply for condemnation. So you can see there's a very, very strict law here mm. if you don't have 180 days. So it's in your interest you know, to find the right uh, methods and means to bring an application to say to the court, Look, I want my application finalized. Whatever the decision he makes, let him make his decision. I can't be held in limbo for seriously, Shafat, sometimes years, eh? five years, six years. 
So that, uh, that's quite something. That's uh, quite some time to wait, you know, five, six years, and uh, yeah, you get old, very old by then. Now, Ashraf, uh, can uh, you get a permanent residence in uh, South Africa through marriage? Yes, you can. So the, um, the Act and the regulations make provision for permanent residence permit through marriage after a period of five years. So you cannot apply for permanent residence before that period. So this marriage must subsist for five years. Now, oftentimes, once you get the permanent residence, what we call the PR certificate, there are conditions attached to it. It also says that you must remain in a good faith spousal relationship for at least a period of 24 months after that. Thereafter, you are, you know, free basically to continue on your permanent residence permit. A lot of people, unfortunately, use these mechanisms to get to that point, And lo and behold, they divorce the South African spouse. And suddenly you find they're marrying another spouse mm. because they're now permanent residence permit holders, which seems to be the spouse from the country of origin. But Homo Fez is alive to these uh, tricks. And uh, you'll find yourself going through quite an interrogation when you try and bring the other spouse forward. Just one second. Yes, uh, Shrafa, you're talking about uh, abusing uh, that, uh, you know, permanent uh, visa they get after marrying a spouse in South Africa and uh, it's being abused, uh, Shraf. No, definitely. I think the department is very, very alive to this fact. Therefore, you heard the other part of the recent announcement by the minister, which is the amendment to the uh, present legislation. It's there out for public comment until 19th January 2024. Here what the minister invents an intention to do is to amend all of the laws dealing with such issues. So he's looked at a reform of the Refugee Act, the Citizenship Act, and the Immigration Act. To me, the stated purpose in respect of refugees appears to be a temporary cessation from the international protocols that we've signed, which allow immigrant, uh, sorry, asylum seekers to come to the border, cross into South Africa, go to a refugee reception office and obtain refugee status. There, as I understand it, the reform is that we will ask for a suspension of the conditions of the international treaties that we've signed, and we will actually now say to asylum seekers, you will not be allowed entry into the Republic. You will be housed and encamped at various ports of entry, and you will stay there and not join mainstream uh, population until your matter is determined. Now, let me tell you the surprising facts here. Mm. On one account it was established that such is the backlog in asylum and refugee applications, it will take 63 years to clear the backlog. Wow. <laughs> so you can imagine now, now in South Africa is saying this is very much in line with how other jurisdictions have dealt with similar challenges. Now you'd see, for example, in Britain, Rishi Sunak has now yes. trotted off to Rwanda 
in order to put a treaty in place with the Rwandan government that they will accept asylum seekers that have been rejected in England or that are being processed to wait it out in Rwanda. So that's how the UK government intends to deal with these things. I must hasten to add that the House of Lords have declared the scheme unlawful. But of course, you know, Rishi Sunak has got executive powers as the Prime Minister, and uh, he will use that. So when it comes to executive powers, the courts don't really have the ability to examine this, because there is a thing called the separation of powers, where the judiciary is separate from legislature and from government, so that you know, they all have distinct roles to play. And government is not accountable then to the courts. Now, where else have we seen such a trick? Uh, well, uh, some time ago, you saw there were riots in Israel when there was an attempt to remove the Supreme Court of Israel as the last court or highest court of law. And the... Uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu says, no, he wants to be that person that makes the ultimate decision on matters concerning the law. So there you could see, again, the dynamic tension between where does the ultimate power lie in these matters. So, yeah, that's, uh, that's the situation in terms of economic reform. And the minister is very clear that don't just expect a conduit that marriage will re- lead to permanent residence and lead to citizenship in the end. That's not going to happen. Uh, In the 2017 white paper, the minister seemed to indicate that, well, you had to make a case of why you want to be in the country. You you had to be of some use to us. You can't just come here, marry and stay. Of course, I think uh, such decisions will have to uh, satisfy the constitutional requirements of people and uh, whether such a decision or such amendment will be constitutionally compliant is yet to be seen, but I have my doubts. Yeah, absolutely, Ashraf. Uh, we do have a lot of doubts when it comes to Sunak and the U.S. and so forth. Uh, you know, can a spouse uh, visa be cancelled, uh, Ashraf? You know, it is. I know it's granted for a limited period of uh, time, uh, if I'm not mistaken, 30, 30 months or so, Ashraf. Yes, it can be cancelled. Remember, the preceding question was a, a divorce, right? Gee. And if you're in a life partnership and now the, the nikah ends and the South African spouse goes to home affairs uh, because the foreign spouse is also obliged to report to home affairs when there's a change of conditions in the, um, in the existence in the country. And they're obliged to go and say, listen, yeah, I'm, I'm giving up this uh, visa because uh, mm. the thing has ended. Good faith. But now remember, this judgment kicks in. It says, okay, the relationship has ended, but there's children. Wow. Where the, the visa continues. But you have three months from the date of the judgment to go and fix up your affairs. So there you have it. You have relief in terms of this judgment that you could utilize to regularize your stay and remain in the country, which includes, see, keep in mind, the rights of the children is paramount here. 
and the, and the court didn't want the children to suffer. Let's say the South African spouse was not working and only the foreign spouse could earn. Now, how does it make sense to deprive the children of an income mm. simply because the foreign spouse or the parent didn't have a visa? Also, in cases I've, I've come across uh, widows, you know, that were married. Uh, and then obviously the husband then suddenly died and there's minor children left here. And so what does she do? She doesn't have a primary visa. Now the court said, no, that primary visa will continue till its end, but she has three months to try and start putting things into place. So again, a very, very generous judgment seeking to protect the rights of um, the minor children and the right to an uh, income and a, and a right not to be separated from their parent, albeit that the parent is a foreigner. Well, I tell you, Ashraf, uh, fascinating uh, conversation with you once again. And uh, really, I've learned a lot from you, my beloved brother. Perhaps your parting words uh, this evening? Uh, as usual, I always say we must remain hopeful. We must have a high opinion of Allah. We must continue in whatever we're doing, especially uh, prayers. I'd like to just take a side note and, and just say something with regard to the ecology that we spoke about. Yeah. You know, Shavad, the, 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 the world is, is getting hotter and burning up. You know, right now there's a huge iceberg floating down to the, the shipping lanes and it could disrupt shipping. Uh, already we're seeing on a different level the shipping disrupted in Durban ports. Mm. Um, so what I would suggest is people should consider planting some trees. Uh, there's a sawabich area for that. In the long term, there will be some fruit and food that you could utilize or give away uh, and just be getting back into touch uh, with nature, Shabbat. Uh, yeah. Be mindful of water resources. Let's not waste it. And uh, yeah, let's try our best. Zakalah for that. A beautiful thought indeed. And uh, yes, I've been planted quite a few pear trees I'll do even more, and one for Haji Pay, and one for my bar. Yeah, I'll do it for you, Ashraf. Well, uh, Ashraf, you have a mashallah beautiful evening ahead. We'll talk to you soon. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Time for us to go for the Isha Zan, and inshallah we will continue after that.